go to Mark chapter 1. We've been started a series last week in Mark, and um, today we have a lot to cover. So let me get there. Mark chapter 1, we're going to go all the way to chapter 2, verse 12. So a lot of text to cover today. And we're going to start in Mark chapter 1, verse 16. It says, Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to him, said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, proclaiming in the synagogues and casting out demons. Verse 40, and a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and, then, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, 
why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out there before them. So they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. All right, I want to start this morning with a question. Um, how many of you, when you were a kid, you just did something colossally dumb? Anybody? Like, you look back on it now, and you go, like, what was I thinking? Well, here is my colossally dumb kid story, okay? We lived out in the country in South Texas, and it was a pretty normal thing for us to have these massive bonfires. I mean, 20 to 30 feet tall. And I remember, I was probably 13 or 14, when me and my buddies had built this bonfire. And being the pyromaniacs that all boys are, um, we decided to just find whatever we could and start throwing stuff into the fire. So branches, pecans, uh, whole bags of marshmallows. Like, have you ever thrown a whole bag of marshmallow into the fire? It is one of the most fascinating things that you could ever do in life, and everyone should do it. Um, but eventually, one of my friends, his name was Roy, Roy, he grabbed this aerosol can. See, you know where this is going. And he said, he said, what do you think will happen if we throw this can into the fire? And, of course, me being the good old boy, I said, oh, don't do that. No. Um, I said, do it. That's going to be awesome. And so he throws this, mass, this, this can into the fire. And what do you think happened? I mean, the fire, it was just this boom, and the fire erupted. And all of a sudden, there was just flaming items just flying through the air and a dry pasture in the summer in South Texas, and just chaos ensued. I mean, you have all these teenage boys running around trying to put out all these little fires everywhere. And it's not like the fire isn't spreading, but it's obvious that even for a 13-year-old boy, it's obvious this could get out of control really quickly. And for even us as seniors, we started to get scared. And back then, they didn't have cell phones, so I don't know who, but someone thankfully called the fire department, probably a neighbor, when they heard a bomb go off. And, and so, you know, we didn't call them, but uh, all of a sudden, we see these lights speeding toward us, and it was the fire department. And they pull up, and this one guy gets out of the truck. And it was obvious that this was the guy that was in charge. He looked at me and my buddies, and he said, boys, step aside, right? And we were like, yes, sir, you got it. And he just started to control the environment. I mean, when he said move, people moved. When he gave a command, people listened. And there was like a beautiful symphony with him and his crew as they put out this fire. And for me, it was a kind of authority that I had never seen before. And as I was studying this text this week, I think God brought that guy to mind. Because as we walk through this text, and as you read it, we read it, you could probably see it. I mean, there is something about Jesus. When he steps into the scene, there's just something different about him. I mean, he holds the, an authority that no one has ever seen before. This guy is different. And in every moment, it's obvious. We have never seen anything like this before. That's the response of every moment in this text. Now, before we jump further into that, I want to give some, um, some commentary on 
the structure of the book of Mark and why we've chosen it. How many of you thought, oh my goodness, this is a lot of verses? Cool. Just me? Okay. I saw Mark raise his hand. He's like, Colton, how are you going to do this? Well, most churches take anywhere between 40 to 50 weeks to cover uh, the book of Mark. So what they'll do is they'll take each moment in a section uh, and they'll just spend one week on each moment. And by the way, uh, by moment, you'll see in your Bibles that there are subtitles, right? Everybody see subtitles? Those have a name in biblical scholarship. They're called pericopes, okay? Which I think is a fun word to say, pericope. Um, we will not call them pericopes. Uh, we will just refer to them as moments. But the way that Mark writes this book, it's not always the most helpful thing to take each moment and focus just on that moment. Mark has a tendency to take a group of moments, and he'll put them together. Sometimes they aren't even in chronological order, but he'll put them next to each other because there's a purpose to that. They, they are communicating a similar theme about Jesus or a similar characteristic about Jesus. So Mark will structure this book um, where things are next to each other and where it may not even seem like it makes sense sometimes, but when you dig in, you go, oh, I see what you're doing there. So while on one hand, it, sometimes it is the most helpful thing to take one moment and put a magnifying glass on it, sometimes it's helpful to take a whole chunk and go, okay, what is the author, what is God trying to communicate here about who Jesus is? So throughout this series, there will be these macro moments where we'll see a big theme about Jesus. And then every once in a while, we'll look at a singular moment and we'll get the magnifying glass out and we'll go, okay, we need to spend a little bit more time on this. And the macro theme we are going to see today, I don't know if you saw it in the text, is authority. When Jesus arrives on the scene, people are astonished because they have never seen anyone like him. So we'll pick it up in verse 16. It says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with his hired servants, and they followed him. So we see two important things happen when Jesus begins his ministry. One, he is calling people to walk with him. And two, their response is immediate and total. Like there's a couple interesting things here. First, when people follow teachers in the first century, they typically didn't ditch everything and commit a lifetime of service to a rabbi. I mean, that was just weird. You didn't do that. If you were a fisherman, you continued to fish while you studied under a rabbi, you just didn't leave your job. But these men encounter Jesus, they do just that. They ditch everything. They leave dad in the boat. It's as if everything that was primary just, or primary just became secondary. And Jesus has become the primary thing in their lives. The second thing that's interesting about this text is that teachers did not call their own disciples. That wasn't a thing. Instead, disciples would pick which teachers they wanted. It's like if you've gone to college or maybe someday you'll go to college, you may have several options on which professor you want to teach that class, right? And you have the authority to choose which professor you want to sit under. That's how it worked in the first century. So the first readers of Mark would have read these verses and they would have thought this whole thing is weird. This is weird. This isn't how it works. Because typically you, you, you could pick who you wanted to learn from. 
But Jesus doesn't do it that way. He takes a system that they know and he turns it upside down. For Jesus to come up to some guys and tell them to follow him and to ditch everything was weird. And we have to understand that. What's even stranger is that they actually do it. (laughs) They actually do it. That there is something about him that they have never seen before. Something that requires, based on what Jesus is asking them, something that requires ultimate commitment, and we can also infer, but also has the potential for ultimate joy. Jesus is essentially saying, knowing me, loving me, resembling me, and serving me must become the supreme passion of your life. Everything else comes second. And then in verse 21, you see a word that is a major theme in this book. It's the word immediately, that over and over again, Mark wants to communicate that Jesus has a mission. He has He knows what he's doing. He has a purpose in everything he's doing. He's accomplishing something. So in verse 21, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So the Sabbath was a day of rest, the study of the words of God, and the synagogue was a place where you would gather to do that. And when Jesus begins to preach, the text says they're amazed. So we have to ask the question, why? Well, it was normal for people to give sermons in the synagogue. So what separated Jesus from everybody else? Notice that it says he taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So the way the scribes taught is they would quote other rabbis to legitimize what they were saying. Jesus walks in and he doesn't quote anybody else. If you ever read in the Gospels, uh, you see where it says, um, where Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said, but I say to you this, that's the idea here. That Jesus' ideas, what he says, they don't come from anybody else. There is a level of knowledge and truth that he carries that no one has seen before, and that's amazing to them because they've never heard someone talk like this. And then, all of a sudden, while Jesus is teaching, A guy possessed by a demon interrupts him in verse 23. It says, immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. And they all questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And notice that it says that they were amazed. Now, why were they amazed? It wasn't because a demon interrupted the service and Jesus exercised the demon. It wasn't the exorcism. Other people were doing that. We have accounts of demons being exorcised before Jesus arrived. But when you would exorcise a demon, there would always be two things, okay? There would be a call to to be silent, and there would be a call to to come out. Now, Jesus does that, but there's a big difference in how he does it. With normal exorcisms, the call to be silent would always be in the name of the Most High, and it was always followed by rituals or symbolic movements or incantations, and Jesus doesn't use any of that. He just uses the power of his words. He commands, and the demon obeys, and they had never seen that before. I mean, If Jesus was the main character of the movie The Exorcist, it would have been a really boring movie, right? No spinning heads, no climbing walls. I mean, Jesus would have said, get out, and the credits would have rolled, and he would have saved humanity a lot of bad cinema, right? 
Um, in this moment, if you're there, you have no category for Jesus. There is a level of authority here that I don't understand. It's not normal. These people are shocked. And it's not because they encountered a demon. That, that was normal. They are shocked because they saw real authority, real power that they had never seen before. Not only does Jesus talk like he runs the show, he actually runs the show. They walked out saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? Like you have no category for what you just saw. It's not normal. And then Mark dials it up and verse 29, it says, immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. When he came, he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Okay, I want us to see the progression here. Like building blocks, Mark is systematically laying out the authority of Jesus. First, you saw that he had authority over people, right? When he spoke, they listened and responded. Then we saw that Jesus had authority to teach like no one else had taught before. Then we saw that Jesus not only has the authority over the trajectory of people or the authority to teach, but he also has authority over the spiritual world. And now Mark takes it to a whole new level. This moment with Simon's mom is tangible. Everyone knows that she's sick. She is physically ill right in front of their eyes. And Jesus hears that she's sick, walks in, and heals her of her fever. So if you're reading this, you have to go, okay, wait. Who has authority over the physical world like that? Who has the ability to heal sickness? And, and, and we know that it's instantaneous because Simon's mom just gets up and starts serving them. And so if you're there, word's going to spread, right? And so by verse 32, the whole city is gathered to see Jesus. And so before we move on, I want us to notice something. As Jesus introduces himself to the world, everyone he meets is astonished and amazed. They weren't impressed with how he looked. They weren't impressed with his oratory skill. And every encounter, they are struck by his authority, by his assumption that he is in charge. And not only does he talk like he's in charge, but that he actually is in charge. This guy commands authority over people as if he thinks he has the right to tell you what you should do with your life. He, he commands the scriptures as if he thought them up. He commands demons as if they know that he's in charge of them. I mean, think about it. He commands the physical world as if the physical world is subject to him. So here's my question for the faith family. Do we ever think of Jesus that way? Like when you think about Jesus, what do you think about? When you hear Jesus, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, Jesus is love. Jesus is grace. Jesus is patience. Jesus is compassion. While all of those things are true, the first word that Mark wants us to think about here is authority. In every encounter, he commands obedience with every person, with the spiritual world, and with the physical world. And when he commands, they respond. Now, notice, Jesus is establishing his authority in this first chapter, but people aren't really sure what to do with it. Do you see that? 
No one, besides the demon at least, is falling at his feet and calling him Lord. And the crowds at this point, how do you think they see him? They just see him as this healer helper. We don't know exactly who he is, but we know that he has authority over sickness. We know that he has authority over demons. So if you are sick or if you are demon-possessed, you can go to Jesus and he'll fix you. They're trying to give him an identity here in the first chapter. Jesus is the healer guy. He's a healer. He helps people. And by the end of the day, the whole city is there, but they aren't coming to call him Lord. They're coming with needs. Heal my sick kid. I have a demon-possessed friend. And that's an identity that Jesus will still give people today. Jesus is a good teacher, and he's an incredible healer. So if you have a problem, you can go to Jesus, and he can solve your problem. And what happens is we craft this version of Jesus that just hits on one truth of who he is. That if I'm sick, or if something is happening in my life that is tough, then I can go to Jesus, and he can fix my problem. Even today, there are whole movements that have been created around that idea of Jesus, that The only reason I engage with Jesus is so that he can fix my problems. And that's the trajectory we are headed for here in Mark 1. You see it? That's where we're headed until Jesus puts a stop to it. Look at Mark 1, 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, And they found him and said, everyone is looking for you. So Jesus slips away very early in the morning, which you could do a whole sermon a whole week just on that text, that in the midst of all the craziness, Jesus' priority is to commune with his Father in the midst of the craziness of our lives. Our first priority should be to commune with our God. But it says Simon and some others, we don't know who, they're out looking for him. And when they find him, they say, hey, everyone's looking for you. What's the idea being communicated there? It's almost like, Jesus is being rebuked, right? Hey, Jesus, we have this awesome healing ministry happening. So what are you doing out here alone praying? Jesus, you have misplaced your priority. You're the healing guy. What does he tell them? He said to them, hey, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. He says, I'm here to preach. What's he doing? He's self-identifying here. He's saying, I have come here for a purpose, so we're leaving and we're going to the next town because I have a message. And what begins from this point on in the book is that there are two different groups who will try to nail down who exactly Jesus is. They'll try to put him in a box that they have designated for him. So I hope you're here next week because next week we'll finish chapter two and we'll see this theme continue that this week and next week kind of go together. And, And more specifically, From this point on, we see Jesus, in his authority, reject every box that people try to put him in. And those boxes that we see in these texts, they still remain today. Like like in this moment, he is rejecting the box that says, I'm only just a helper and a healer. The other box that we'll touch on today, but really dive into next week, is that Jesus is this hard, rule-making, heavy-handed Jesus. So in its simplest form, you've got the Jesus who loves you no matter what. There's no wrong that you can do, and he will fix every problem that you have. And then on the other side, you've got the, you better follow the rules, Jesus. And if you don't follow the rules, I'm going to smite you and cast you out. And be willing to bet that a lot of us probably grew up in one or two of those ideas in our heads, right? 
And that's the boxes that we still try to put him in today. And in Mark chapter 1 and 2, Jesus is going to reject both of those boxes. Here, we see him reject the healing helper box. He says, I'm here to preach. And then, in chapter 2, we see the religious rulers show up. And they're going to try to put him in the rule-following box. And before we get there, what I love is that Mark, right in between these two moments, we get a story about a leper. And I think it's beautiful. Because it's right after this moment that the religious rulers are going to get involved. Because this is a big moment, and we can't pass it by. Mark 1.40 says a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. What's interesting about this moment is that this guy believes that Jesus has the power to make him clean. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. But he isn't sure if Jesus wants to. See, this moment, it's, it's, more, it's about more than just the healing that happens. Jesus not only wants to heal this guy physically, but he wants to heal this guy's soul. I mean, Jesus could have just said in this moment, okay, be clean and go. But he says, he adds on, I will. It's the word thalo. It's the word for desire. He says, no, I want to make you clean. I desire to make you clean. And in this moment, he's hitting on something that I think we all struggle with. This idea of, I know that I'm not clean. I know that there's something off. I know that I've failed. But I'm just not sure if my God wants me. I'm not sure if he, he might love me. Jesus loves you, but he, he doesn't really like me. And this guy says, man, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, no, I desire to make you clean. He's going after this guy's heart. It's not just about the healing. It's about the person. And so he says, I value you. I see you. And so Jesus tells this guy, hey, don't tell anyone. But he does. And, and, and so word really spreads. And if you heal a leper, you just got to know people are going to hear about it. I mean, the rabbis during this time would say that it was as difficult to, to heal the leper as it was to raise the dead. The understanding was both are impossible for man, but we see throughout the book that neither are a problem for Jesus, that Jesus cleanses the defiled and he raises the dead with a simple command. And it's right after this moment that the religious leaders are going to come into the picture, and that's going to set a theme that's going to go on for the rest of the book. And in Mark chapter 2, through the first part of chapter 3, there are five moments. These five moments, they're not even chronological, okay? They're all over the place. But they are five moments that are joined thematically. And the theme is the religious leaders have now come to check Jesus out. And their goal is to make sure that he is following the traditional rules that have been set. They have a box that they have created and they want Jesus for, to fit into the box of what a religious leader is supposed to be. And in these next five moments, Jesus refuses to fit in that box. And by the end of next week, there will be no question as to who Jesus is self-identifying to be. So, chapter 2, verse 1. I'll summarize the first few verses. He goes to Capernaum. He's preaching in house. It's so packed that people can't get through the door. Some guys come in. They've got a paralytic friend. And so they want to get their friend to Jesus. They want Jesus to heal their friend. So they decide, like anybody would, hey, let's just drop him through the roof, right? And so they get their friend to Jesus. And Jesus isn't mad at them. In fact, it says that Jesus saw their faith. But... Before Jesus heals this guy, he wants to make a point. It's fascinating. So we'll pick it up in verse 5. 
It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the religious leaders are watching this moment happen, and they ask a question in their minds. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, they ask a question in their minds. Why does he speak like that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, before we pile on the Pharisees, let's really think about this. That's a very legitimate question. That's a great question. Like, let's say, Tristan and Holly, let's say you two get into an argument just right here in front of everybody, and I, come, and I look at you and I say, I forgive you. What would you say to that? Who cares? You don't have any authority over it. Who, get out of here. Like, why? what authority do you have in our conversation, right? It would be weird, right? Or if you're at the grocery store and I came up to you and, and you're just sitting there getting an onion and I say, hey, every sin you've ever committed, I forgive you. What would you say? Get out of here, weirdo. What are you doing, right? That's just weird. That's just weird. And the scribes, In this moment, they go, whoa, whoa, you can't say that. Jesus, before he heals this guy, he says, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) It's an insane thing to say. The scribes say, whoa, 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 you can't do that. Who do you think you are? Jesus, you have this cute little healing ministry going, but you can't talk like that. Only God can talk like that. That's what they're thinking. And so think about this. This is important to catch. This isn't Jesus's first miracle. All throughout chapter one, he's healing people. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven to make a point. He's, he's setting up a confrontation here about his own identity. He could have just healed the guy and that would have been it. That's what he's been doing this whole time. But he makes a point to say, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes throw a penalty flag and they're thinking, you can't say that. And before the scribes can even talk, it says in verse 8, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? And that's an even better question. Let me ask you, which is easier, easier to say your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? They were probably just as quiet as you are because it's an impossible question to, ask, to answer. On one hand, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because you can't verify it. I can say it, but you don't know if it's true. Get up and walk can be harder because that's instantly verifiable. You're about to see if I can really have, if I really have that power. On the other hand, to say that your sins are forgiven is an insane thing to say. Why? Because the Pharisees are right. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. So they're not crazy. So Jesus says in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he turns and he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Essentially, he's saying, I want you to know that I have authority over the unseen thing. I want you to know that I have authority over the unseen thing. And to prove that, I'm going to do this seen thing. Get up and walk. What's he doing? He's self-identifying. He's saying, I have the authority to forgive sins. Did you notice what he called himself? He calls himself the son of man. That is an insane thing to call yourself here. I mentioned last week, there there are two parts to Mark. There's part one leading up to Mark chapter eight, and then there's part two after chapter eight. 
This is the only time that Jesus will refer to himself as the son of man in part one. While in part two, after Mark 8, Jesus will regularly call himself the son of man. Now, what is the significance of saying that, right? Well, in this moment, there's a couple things you can think of when he says son of man. And we'll get into all the options as we go through the book. But for this moment, for time's sake, they are meant to think of Daniel 7. Okay, so in your little journal, right, Daniel 7, 13, right? Daniel 7, 13, and this is what it says, and they would have all known this. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heavens, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages to serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He says, you want to know my authority? I'm the one who has all dominion. I'm the one who all peoples, nations, and languages serve me. My kingdom, it will never be destroyed. That's a crazy claim to make, unless it's true, right? So in verse 12, it says, he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And so to close, let's just leave with this question. Is, is Jesus just become boring to you? <laughs> if he has, you're not seeing the actual Jesus. If, if this whole thing seems boring to you, you have crafted a version of Jesus and put Jesus in a box that he's never claimed to be in. Because the Jesus that we see here, in every moment, he's amazing, he's astonishing. They don't have a category for him. There is an authority within him that we, can't, we, we don't have a place to understand that. And listen, the fact that he has authority over us is a good thing for us. It's a good thing for us. Because there's nothing and no one that is better. As, we'll, as you'll see as we walk through this book, the grace of Jesus is immeasurable and it is better than anything that you will find in this world. Don't confuse yourself and think that the things of this world can satisfy you or the pride and self can satisfy you. Sitting at the feet of Jesus and calling him Lord is the most satisfying place you will ever be. And that's my prayer for us. As we look just today, as we think about that authority, that we would come to the authority of Jesus, we would submit to it, and we would finally find rest and peace. That he, we would, we would be reminded of what it means to actually hope, <laughs> to actually have joy and to have confidence in our God. That can only be found at the feet of Jesus, saying, you have all authority. I release all of my life into your hands. Lead me, guide me.